Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Twenty-five years ago, on the 11th of July, the massacres of over 8,000 Muslim men and boys took place in Srebrenica. It followed three years of bitter warfare, pitting the Muslims of Bosnia in an asymmetric conflict against the Bosnian Serbs and their Serb state backers. President Milosevic's rise to power upon a cocktail of Serbian nationalism and anti-Muslim phobia led to a self-proclaimed policy of ethnic cleansing. As the world looked on, Sitting on their hands, Serb forces systematically cleansed Bosnia of its Muslims, killing, raping and looting. The Clinton administration stood back, initially leaving the unfolding crisis to be dealt with by the hapless European Union. The EU saw little interest in settling the crisis, instead hamstringing the Bosnian Muslims by imposing an international arms embargo upon them. When they did move, it was through a weak peacekeeping mission that lacked the political will to defend civilians against the machinery of a state. Srebrenica was a UN safe haven, protected by Dutch peacekeepers. By 1995, the region had been cleared of Muslims with the small enclave together with Zeppa and Gorazde, a magnet for fleeing civilians. As the facts on the ground changed, and in a US election year, the Clinton administration wanted to pursue a peace treaty that would in effect accept the gains made by the Serbs through conquest. This is where Srebrenica, according to multiple sources, including the US Special Envoy Richard Holbrook, became a sacrifice for a greater goal of peace. I have detailed some of this evidence in a thread on my Twitter feed that I have linked in the description of this programme. Over a number of chilling days, Muslim prisoners were shot and buried in mass graves. Our guest this week, Dr. Joseph Kaminsky, is Associate Professor at the Department of International Relations at the International University of Sarajevo, 
He has spent the last six years in the country, which he has now adopted as his own. Dr. Kaminsky has written a number of papers on Islam and governance, and he is currently authoring a book on Islam and liberalism, a matter we discuss at the end of the podcast. On that topic, please remember to sign up to our free comparative ideas course, together with an Usul al-Fiqh course organised by a partner institute, Al-Arqam Academy. The links for both courses are in the description of this programme. Dr. Joseph Kaminsky, welcome to the programme. Actually, if I can start by asking, if you don't mind me asking, um, Joseph Kaminsky doesn't sound like a Bosnian name. So what, what brought you to Bosnia? Um, well, you know, in the United States, I, I, I'm from the United States originally, and uh, ethnically my family's a bunch of different things. Obviously, you probably gathered Polish, but also my uh, father's side is Croatian, so I do have some connections to the region ethnically. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the United States, the job market is so complicated, and I, I wanted to get out of the United States anyways. I, uh, you know, I've just had, sort of had enough of it and would like a little bit of time out of it, and that's why I, I applied all over the world, not just in the United States. And, you know, I had a job interview with the American University of Beirut, and uh, so yeah, I had an interview. They gave the job to the guy with the PhD from the London School of Economics, who has gone on so far to have a very good career. So like, I don't feel any sadness about that. But you know, I was sort of like, oh, you know, I just finished my PhD, and it looks like I'm gonna go the first year into the job market without a job. And then all of a sudden, I get an email out of nowhere from this university, and I check it, and uh, you know, it sort of surprised me because they really were very interested in me, and um, I was basically offered the job, and. I asked my advisor, should I take this or not? And he, and he says, what do you have to lose? You don't have a job. It's, if it's bad, then you just fly back home. He said, just stay for at least a couple months to make enough money to fly back home. And I sort of laughed. And then, uh, you know, six years later, here I still am. And I've done pretty well. I'm associate professor now and uh, department chair. And it's really worked out for me. And I just published an article about teaching in the developing world. It's very different than teaching in the West. And so, yeah, I really enjoy where I'm at. I like being in a Muslim-majority country. It matters to me a lot. And uh, I'm willing to sacrifice the comforts of the United States for the comfort of having other Muslims around me. So, like, life is not as easy here. You know, it's not that hard either. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like that. But, like, you know, just things like with government and getting paperwork done, it's, it's, it's difficult. But uh, I'm willing to trade that in for the fact that I can sit around people that I know don't hate me for my religion. And that, that really matters to me at a deep, uh, at a sort of a subconscious level, I've realized. Because in the United States, I always have this sense of unease, like I'm being attacked even when I'm not. And I think it has to do with me knowing that people around me don't like my religion. So I don't know. Alhamdulillah, we had a, a, an opportunity to visit last year and uh, it was a great place and uh, lovely people and Sarajevo and Mostar were, were wonderful cities. Alhamdulillah, we, um, we really enjoyed it. Oh, it's very amazing. It's a wonderful place. Not just Sarajevo, the whole country, you know, Mostar, Blagaj, there's some, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of history here. Uh, and is really the intersection of multiple cultures, and you really need to spend a little bit of time here to see it all, because the longer you're here, you'll start to really understand it, because if you just go on a quick tour, you see stuff, but you, you don't really internalize it. It doesn't sort of absorb into you until you've been here for a few months, and it's really great. I really love it here. Now, recently, I saw a Facebook post of yours where you described your feelings when you first went to the Srebrenica Memorial. For the benefit of our listeners, can you please just maybe give us a, a, a feel for how you approached and how you responded to the memorial when you, when you, when you went to it for the first time? Okay, well, um, the, the, the beginning of the story actually begins before you actually enter Srebrenica, in my case, because I'm coming from Sarajevo on a van 
with my students. And uh, it's a three hour bus ride to go about 140 kilometers because the roads are just really, really bad. So the entire trip, you're sort of a sense of dread. I don't know how to explain it, but like, you know, you're going to see something bad. So like you have three hours of sort of being uncomfortable, but at the same time, you're a professor and you got to make sure you keep a strong face for your students. Mind you, when I first went, many of our students actually uh, had family members who, um, you know, there's a couple students I had who never met their fathers. They were killed during the war. So they were born. And then shortly after they were born, their father was killed. So we're a little bit past that now because most of our students were born in around 2000 or 1999-ish. But uh, when I first got here, there was more than a couple students who never met their father. So like for me, it was very, uh, I mean, you know, I had both my parents, you know, my mother recently passed away, sadly, but I had my both my parents my whole life. And I, I couldn't imagine never meeting my father and then knowing that he was tortured and during a war. So, um, you know, when you get there, this, I guess there's this eerie calm because the area is very, it's, it's, it's rural, you know, Serbrenica is right on the border of the Drina River, which is a very beautiful part of the world. People go there for, um, you know, it's like a river, so you can go rafting and people have summer houses on the river. And the Drina River is literally on the border of Serbia and Bosnia, so that is the borderline. And Srebrenica is just before you get to that river. And, uh, you know, when you get there, the memorial is actually not, it's just slightly outside the city. So you have to keep going to get into it, but it, it's just really overwhelming. You see just thousands upon thousands of white grave markers. And uh, you, you actually, can, you know, when you go on the tour, you actually go in the battery factory that, where the, the Dutch soldiers were, and you, you see all of that. And it's really an overwhelming experience. And uh, I, I just, the first time I went, I really broke down. I, I called my mom and, you know, I, you, know, you know, I try to avoid upsetting my mom because my mother had cancer for nine years. And like, you don't, when somebody is that sick, you don't want to call them a bad news or sad stories. It was such an overwhelming experience. And I just, I really broke down. Even, even talking about it right now is hard for me. And uh, it was difficult because, you know, the kids are looking at me and they understand it. They're not judging me at all. Like, it's just, I feel like I should be able to put on a stronger face. But when you look at a, a gravestone and you see like a birth date and a death date in the same year, that literally means that person was killed within months of being born. And like, that's just really hard to look at. And uh, the first time, it's very emotionally overwhelming. I don't know if I was able to pay any attention to the actual like talk because I was just being overwhelmed by emotion. The second time was, I was a little bit more um, composed, I guess you would say. But after that, I, I just, I, I can't go back right now. Like maybe in a couple of years, but I just, it's just too overwhelming. It's too sad. And, you know, I, I don't like to talk about the, the war that much with my students because I'm not qualified because many of these students are actually have, you know, family members who lived through it. So like, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation, but I fully understand, well, I mean, it's the best I can, like the reason why Bosniaks are so upset about the Western response to this genocide because it really has been underwhelming in comparison to other atrocities that have happened in other parts of the world. And uh, the thing that makes it so difficult is the fact that, you know, the Serbs never have really owned up to what they did. And that makes it worse when, you know, there is no reconciliation. You know, at least at the end of World War II, the Nazis sort of were defeated completely, a new regime came into power, and it became a major part of the new Germany was to recognize the atrocities of the Holocaust. And this, that never happened here. And you still have a large part of this country that wants to break off, break off and uh, join Serbia or be independent. 
you see memorials, you see to war criminals, to Rako Mladic, to Radovan Karadzic, and uh, it, it's just like crazy because you, like when you're going to get from city to city in Bosnia, you go through certain Serbian parts. So just because the Federation and the Republic of Serbs are separate doesn't mean that all the Serbs live there and all the Bosniaks live here. So you'll be driving through one town, getting to another town that's Bosniak, and in that town you'll see they actually have murals of Radko Mladic painted on buildings. And it's, it's really disorienting to think that this man who caused so much terror for so many years is like being celebrated literally 20 to 25 kilometers away from Sarajevo. Like as you go east into Bosnia, even when you're in the, the Bosnian part, you run into these areas and it's just a, it's just a reminder that, you know, the healing here has not really finished yet. And it, it's questionable whether it ever will because, you know, this, this narrative of Serbian victimhood is very powerful. And, uh, you know, I lived in the United States in an area with many Serbian people and it, it's, you know, it's still there even for Americans who uh, didn't necessarily even live here during the war, but nonetheless, this internalized narrative of victimhood, and it really has sort of toxic consequences. I mean, from, from our side, I mean, we, we tend to not follow uh, the daily events in, in Bosnia, of course, and, and you know, we, we follow the, the bigger events. And, uh, you know, at least it, it seems that Serbia now wants to, it's a, uh, a, a country that wants to join the European Union. Uh, it, uh, at least it, it seems like a country that's uh, moved on. I mean, uh, the perpetrators of the conflict uh, have all been tried at the ICTY and at the Hague, and and you know, um, uh, you know, at least from a from very superficial external perspective, you know, the country is trying to move in a in a more liberal democratic direction. Um, but but you're you're suggesting that you know there is a, a still a very deep feeling that uh, the Serbs were in the right and, and the war was a just war? Well, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that, actually. I think that it's more of most of the Serbs I've spoken with recognize bad things happen. Like, mm. they don't really want to come to full grips with how bad things were. But very few people I've met are actually completely denying this. Like, no, it didn't happen. It's all a lie. Like, it's, it, the, the narrative more is it's, it's overstated or what aboutism? What about this? They did that. And it's interesting because the country Serbia itself, I think, is different. You got to remember the Serbs and the Republic of Serbska and the Serbian in the country of Serbia. There's a different mindset. I would argue that in Serbia it's much more progressive, actually, on this compared to what you see in the Republic of Serbska, where these people really are still living in war mindset. You know, I've been to Belgrade a lot. You know, you go to eastern Serbia near the border of Bulgaria, to city like Niš. You know, it's a completely different place. Like, they didn't experience the work that's so far away, really. And, you know, it's a very beautiful part of the world as well. The people are very friendly. And in Belgrade, too, Belgrade's a very cosmopolitan city. It's, it's, I really enjoy going there. The people are pretty friendly. They don't really like Americans that much because of different things that have happened in recent times. But I, I, I've, uh, it's not the Serbian nation of Serbia, that territory. It's the mindset that, uh, especially with the Serbs living in Bosnia, the Bosnian Serbs call them to differentiate and i would say in serbia there are bigger issues with kosovo (laughs) and that is still pretty uh salient and that is something that they have not yet uh that that's where the real tension i think is if you go to serbia and ask who the real bad guys are it's always going to be kosovo and this is because of the ethnic dimension you know i you know people sort of argue that 
Serbs see Bosniaks as sort of their long-lost sort of slower brothers. You know what I mean? They're, they're like their cousins who annoy them, but they still share a language. They're still the same ethnicity, technically, in many regards. And it's the Albanians with a different language, different, you know, everything. That are, that's the, the external enemy more so. You know, it's like the Bosniaks are misguided, and they can eventually come back to what they should be, right? But the Albanians are the eternal other. And that's why I think in Kosovo, uh, with the situation in Kosovo is much more tense than it is with Bosnia, where, you know, the Bosnian government and the Serbian government actually enjoy pretty good relations. I want to talk to you about Srebrenica, but before I do, uh, why is it that the Serbian cause has become a rallying call for white nativists around the world? I mean, Brandon Tarrant, who was the New Zealand um, uh, attacker in, in the two mosques in New Zealand, he played a Serbian uh, war anthem. Uh, depicting the civil war, um, which Serbs played during the civil war uh, before he entered the first masjid. And uh, it just seems that uh, for some reason, Serbia uh, is a a rallying call for these white nativists. And I wonder why that would be. Uh, I think the link is pretty clear. Uh, I mean, you see like the fusion of religion and national identity uh, tradition, culture, cultural purity, right? And, you know, Serbian orthodoxy is really a Serbian religion in many regards, you know, and like this is sort of, I think, a vision that's appealing to many white nationalists. I think a lot of people, a lot of these people in the United States would love their own American version of Christianity that's a uniquely American thing because, you know, they don't, you don't have that the same way. The fusion of the, the church and the state as, a, as an ethnic component. And it makes sense because, you know, the Serbs were always seen as sort of the, uh, enduring uh you know resistance against the ottoman uh empire right you know they, they fought against the ottomans from the beginning for the most part and you know they had their s- certain successes and their defeats and you know they were able to construct a, a historical narrative based upon that that's appealing and uh you know this is something that i think yeah it doesn't surprise me that this kind of uh nation-based orthodox christianity this the serbian national the serbian orthodox greek orthodox russian orthodox would be very appealing to white nationalists because it's their own it's 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 the, it's the christian tradition but it's with their own cultural you know flair right their own saints their own heroes and this sounds like something that yeah would be appealing so that's why i think you would see this kind of fusion so let's go back to the bosnian civil war now uh, in 1992, the conflict began and, and it followed the breakup of Yugoslavia. C- can you t- briefly explain the tensions that led to the civil war in 92? Well, first thing I, I should point out here is in Bosnia, people don't like to call it a civil war. It wasn't really a civil war because the Bosnians were at such a disadvantage. It wasn't. It was. It really was a one-sided affair. And uh, what broke, what, what really, you know, the rise of Serb nationalism began in the late 1980s. This is the part that people don't know of the stories. Slobodan Milosevic started the rise in power in the late 1980s, and there was a wave of the Serbian nationalism that, that finally was able to come out because during Tito's time, he made very great efforts to suppress that kind of stuff. And uh, when he died, and there's sort of a period of transition, the regime started to slowly, you know, um, unwind itself and this is sort of what you got with these nationalist politicians now many people knew the writing was on the wall for this to eventually happen it was just a question of when and um so basically 
you know, everyone knew that this idea of maintaining Yugoslavia, which is what the Serbs claimed they were trying to do, was really, you know, not really what they were doing. They were trying to create a, a Serbian dominant state. And uh, this is what sort of set off the conflict that everyone was aware of what was going to happen. So Slovenia was able to sort of break off because Serbs had no, there was like, there's no Serbs in Slovenia. Everyone in Slovenia is pretty much Slovenian. So that was able to go away relatively peacefully. But, you know, the other parts, you know, the Serbs living in these regions, especially in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and this is what sort of led to the conflict. And this sort of historical, uh, you know, when Mladic took care of, uh, when he uh, went into Srebrenica, one of the things he talked about was defeating the Turks. We finally got vengeance on the Turks, right? And so that's what the, the Serbs saw the Bosnian Muslims as. They saw them as Turks. And... Uh, you know, this, this historical animosity with uh, economic conditions, it is a combination of multiple factors in my opinion. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what caused what, but you know, they all interplayed together to lead to the situation that eventually happened. And when the conflict began, uh, the international community placed an arms embargo on the Bosnian Muslims and you, you intimated that yeah. it was a very asymmetrical conflict. Um, I mean, why? What yeah. was behind the arms embargo? What, how did they? Uh, how did they argue that? Well, uh, UN Security Council Resolution Seven Thirteen uh, basically banned, and this was this came out uh, September twenty fifth, nineteen ninety one. So this was like really at the very very beginning. Banned the sale of uh, weapons to any of the former Yugoslav territories, and uh, I think this was a very poorly thought out decision because all the weapons were in Belgrade, which was under control of the Serbs. So the Serbs were cool with this because basically you're denying their enemies weapons because the Bosniaks didn't have anything. The weapons armories were not in Sarajevo, were not in the possession of the Bosniaks. And uh, believe it or not, one of the countries that played a major role in helping keep this country afloat for those at the beginning was Iran. And Iran uh, supplied tactical training. They have, there were people who came here from Iran probably with the Revolutionary Guard who helped train Bosnians and actually supply weapons. And this was like sort of a lifeline that helped the Bosniaks maintain at least a, a fighting chance at the beginning of the war. So, uh, and other couple other places, some of the Arab countries too sort of smuggled weapons in here, but uh, the, the embargo really was probably the biggest problem in the war. And Bill Clinton actually wanted to... Uh, lift the embargo in 93 and supply weapons to the Bosnia, the Bosnians and the, um, and eventually even potentially bomb the Serbian targets. But then uh, the EU was really against this because they didn't want this to turn into a larger scale war. So the part of the story people don't really get is that the Europeans were the ones who really drugged their feet on this. And if it was up to Clinton, they would have probably, Serbanica could have possibly been prevented altogether. And at the same time, though, I mean, the ones who, the most of the troops were European that were in the region. So, like, any kind of skirmishes would put the Europeans at immediate harm risk, not the Americans. So it's always easier to talk about bombing and destroying when you're not putting your own assets on the line. Well, this lack of coordination and response between the Europeans and the Americans really allowed for Srebrenica to happen, right? And, um... You know, the weapons embargo was a very big problem. I have students who told me stories about... Uh, their fathers would be out fighting. And uh, the most important part of the mission was not to necessarily kill the guy, but it was to get their weapons. So 
if you shot and killed a, an opposing soldier and then didn't get his gun and his ammunition, that was seen as a waste. These people were so desperate for weapons that they, it was absolutely essential to not only kill the guy, but to get his gun and his weapons and his knife and bring it back so you have something to use later. So that's the level of desperation that these people face regarding the lack of weaponry and, I mean, even basic gun, basic weapons, ammunition, bullets. We're not even talking about, like, major, you know, surface-to-air missiles and whatnot. Right? We're just talking about having the ability to pull the trigger of a gun was something that was very lacking for the Bosnian side during the beginnings of this war. And the Bosnian Serbs had the backing of um, of Milosevic and, and the Serbian state, and so they had a backing of a conventional army. And and yes. so their supply lines were, were pretty much uh, insured. Now, um, I understand that the United Nations uh, sent in a protection force uh, to... Uh, what would to ostensibly keep the peace and and to to try to create uh, the conditions uh, uh, behind which uh, civilians wouldn't be harmed in in the conflict, but of course there's a lot of criticism now, not just over Srebrenica, but a lot of criticism of the lack of a mandate or the weak mandate that this protection force had. I mean, c- can you explain the the politics surrounding yes. that? Well, basically, the UN or the EU wanted to keep this as a, solely the humanitarian peacekeeping mission. That was their explicit, express goal. And uh, the Americans, once again, Clinton wanted something a little bit more, uh, but the EU just wouldn't have it. And so they did everything they possibly could to avoid having to pull the trigger, so to speak, whenever it needed be. And uh, you know, I would I argue in, an, in another interview I just did that. You know, with the Dutch soldiers, it wasn't that they were incompetent as much as it was they were unwilling. I think that they made a conscious choice to do what they did. I don't think it was because they were confused or lost, because uh, they really had explicit orders to avoid escalating this into a, a, a conflict that they would have to actually be on the front lines in. And, you know, I think that, once again, the conflicting message, the unclear mission, and the soldiers were just unwilling to really put their lives on the line. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I mean, you know, one reason obviously I think relates to the Islamophobia, you know, dimension. I don't think we can deny that. If these were, you know, different religious background, they might have fought harder. But at the same time, I mean, I, I just don't think that the typical Dutch troop who was here really had that much interest in this region anyways. and was just looking to get out of here as soon as possible while alive. And uh, they they did a very poor job, obviously. They did not you know, maintain the peace. And as a result of their unwillingness to put their own lives at risk, which isn't necessary, that's necessary to do if you're going to be a military person. They, they you know, we saw what happened, happened. And, uh, you know, like I said, the, the, the problem here, in my opinion, is the lack of coordination of what the mission was and the EU countries really wanting to avoid turning this into their mission beyond just humanitarian mission. So by 1995, uh, Srebrenica is is a safe zone. The Dutch peacekeepers are maintaining uh, uh, peace or maintaining the the uh, the camp the where the civilians uh, reside, um, and um, uh, the the entire region has changed. Right, the demography of the region, the region, the uh, the, the Bosnian Serbs are, are now surrounding Srebrenica and Gorodze and, and Zepa as well. Uh, and so these safe zones are, are compromised. And um, the only thing I suppose stopping the, um, uh, 
uh, the the uh, Serbs is is the presence of the United Nations. So I'm trying to understand why leave? Why why then uh, make a decision to leave at that moment when it, it's it's not inconceivable to believe that uh, the Serbs will 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 continue to fight and and will uh, ethnically cleanse uh, that part of uh, of Bosnia as well. Well, interestingly enough, uh, in 2019, documents were released by the British National Archives, which indicated that the British military officials actually did not think the Serbs were going to go in and do what they did in Srebrenica, and they placed the blame, believe it or not, on the Bosniak Muslims for um, disrupting Serb communication lines. The British military officials, in their internal communications, which were just declassified, didn't really think this was going to happen, because it seems so ridiculous to think about, like, if you think about it, like the reality of an army marching in and committing genocide in three or four different towns at the same time or around the same time, that's, a, that's hard to, you know, if, if somebody told me that was going to happen, I would say that that can't be right. If they understood the nature of the conflict, um, they would have known that it was very possible, and, but they didn't understand, I think, the, the true nature, the truly, uh, the, the tenacity of Serbian nationalism and that these people have been wanting to do this. And I think for the European mindset, it's just a, it's a mindset they couldn't relate with. And I think that uh, that's sort of how this ended up happening is because a lot of people, I think, genuinely didn't believe it. I don't think they let people in, oh, good, kill those Muslims. I don't believe that's the, the, the rationale, the, the explicit rationale behind the actions. I really don't. I think that the people who, the, these uh, European forces just didn't think this was conceivable. I mean, who can conceive of any human being or group of human beings marching into another city and murdering 8,000 people in a matter of days. I mean, it's, it's, it's just hard to comprehend. And I think that that's part of the problem is a lack of understanding of the dynamics of the region, a lack of understanding of uh, the truly dangerousness of this situation. You know, even before the war started, one of the things my colleagues always, who are a little bit older than me always say is everyone was surprised by, as soon as the war started, the Serbs had all these weapons. It's like they stockpiled. Individual families had their own arsenals waiting to go. They were waiting for this day, right? And the Bosniaks didn't have anything, but all the Serb families had, they would have guns. You know, when the war started, you see your Serbian neighbor with an entire arsenal, and you're like, where did that come from? So many of these people were sort of preparing for this, and the Bosniaks, I'm afraid, just weren't ready for this to happen. What about the, uh, there's an argument uh, which was, first floated by Florence Hartman and uh, in her book. Yeah, that's the argument I think I'm referencing, yeah. That's right, the Srebrenica, exactly, the Srebrenica affair. She she talks about how uh, the, in a sense, Srebrenica, yes, of course, they, they didn't mean, they didn't want to hand over. It wasn't about handing over uh, civilians to for, for the uh, commission of a genocide, but rather that um, ultimately Srebrenica was a lost cause uh, the the region yeah. had been overrun, and the facts on the ground had changed, and 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 uh, these free uh, safe zones were now inconvenient to peace. And and if if they were settled, then the Clinton administration could pursue peace, and and they didn't. In fact, uh, after after Srebrenica, um, and so it, it was in a sense a human sacrifice for peace. Uh, there was a there was a a lack of commitment to. To send in ground troops, and um, the United Nations, you know, were were hunkered down in in this region, and as you said, you know, the Dutch peacekeepers were homesick, and they just wanted to get out. and um, And now you have to resolve the problem of um, 
uh, this this yeah. demographic change in in you know as a result of ethnic cleansing, uh, and so you know it's a case of it's a case of just accepting this is what it is, and and we we now have to move on and and try to pursue a greater peace. Yes, I think that's uh, you know from what I've been reading, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, that there was you know a lot of high level people talking about that this sacrifice would be needed to be made, and they sort of just as you said hoped that this kind of like you know ethnic cleansing or this transfer of land would be enough to get people to the negotiating table. But I don't think they understood the fanatical mindset, once again, of what the Serbian cause was. These people weren't going to stop until they got everything. And, uh, you know, I I don't know how they misunderstood this because, like, you know, if you knew anything about what was going on, you would know that these people were not going to stop until they basically had controlled as much territory as they possibly could. And since they saw no real effort being put up by the UN or the U.S. forces at the time, they figured they were going to go as far as they could until they got slapped back. And, uh, you know, this is uh, this is a lesson that was learned, I think, with Kosovo because, you know, the United States started bombing Belgrade. That was the end of the war. I I, I read a, a – I saw an interesting piece here in the U.K. on, on uh, one of our programs, New, Newsnight, and it, it discussed the role of Richard Holbrook and um, – and he was the U.S. Uh, special envoy for uh, for Yugoslavia, right? For for Bosnia. And um, um, uh, at one point, Holbrook, sometime later, mentioned that uh, the the pressure from above, and I would imagine he means from the Clinton administration, was was really, you know, we need to solve this problem so that we can pursue uh, a greater peace. And um, uh, he also uh, makes reference to being given orders to sacrifice Srebrenica, Gorazda, and, and Zeppa. Um, and uh, of course, you know, one would question whether he means by that sacrifice the lives of the people there, but rather, you know, it, ethnic cleansing had 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 now led to this this new reality. I mean, do you can you shed some light on on the role of of, of uh, Richard Holbrook? Um, yeah, I think that like. Um... Once again, as you said, like this, this idea of sacrifice, what does it actually mean? And I think that these American officials were just hopeful that this would happen somehow peacefully and you know, the bloodshed wouldn't be as bad as it actually was, which is crazy to think about. But I, I think that the you know, Clinton administration had its own problems in the mid-1990s, uh, and the Europeans really were hell-bent on making sure that this whole situation didn't turn into an actual war that they had to get involved in. So I, I, I just don't really uh, understand the law. Lo- I mean, I understand the logic of the calculus of the United States. Some call it Vietnam syndrome. They're afraid that the American public wouldn't support another American military engagement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different possible explanations. But in the end, what ended up happening was they, they created a situation that was the worst possible scenario came true, where large quantities of people were genocided, raped, and tortured in some of the most brutal and barbaric ways thinkable. And I also think that there could possibly be, once again, an element of, you know, how do I say that? I don't want to start sounding social justice warrior, but like white supremacy element in this, in the sense that perhaps the Americans thought that these are white people, these are Serbs, they're Europeans, they wouldn't do the barbaric stuff that would happen in Rwanda. I really believe that that might have been a part of the calculus. In subconsciously that these are white people, they're Europeans, they, they'll know where the line is. And I think that perhaps if this was a people of a different ethnic skin color, so to speak, we might have seen a different response. But I honestly believe that that probably had some element in it. The response was sort of rooted in the fact that, well, these people are sort of like us, and we wouldn't do that ever, so we're assuming they wouldn't either. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about Alia Izetbekovic, the Bosnian Muslim leader, and uh, his role in the crisis, but also his broader uh, works? I mean, I understand he was not just an activist and a, a political leader, but he also was a thinker, and he's written some very interesting books on uh, Islam and, and on modernity. Uh, what, what do you know about uh, Ali Azabekovic, Rahmatullah Ali, and, 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 what is, uh, and what can we learn from him? Well, I mean, well, Ali Azabekovic was an important figure for many reasons. You know, he was uh, jailed by the Tito regime. He uh, was, you know, he, he was an, a known entity here prior to the war. And uh, he sort of emerged as the natural leader come the, uh, when things started, to, when the war broke out. And uh, you know, while he was in jail, he wrote a, a, some interesting stuff. And uh, his Islamic declaration is very interesting, talking about the importance of Islam in the way of life for the Bosnians, talking about sort of a, discussing Islamic governance to some extent. Uh, one of his interesting points that you know, it gets lost is he talks about the importance of maintaining your culture. He gives the example of how uh, this is, this is really interesting in my opinion. He talks about how Japan was able to rebuild itself within 20 years after World War II, despite having two nuclear bombs on it, dropped on it. Whereas Turkey, after Ataturk came and changed the language, was still a mess 70 years later. And his argument sort of was that Japan maintained their cultural and language and they maintained their history and they didn't get cut off from it. And Izabegovich talks sort of about the importance of Bosnians maintaining their identity as you know you to some extent of the language and the history and to not let that get lost and i think that's an interesting point and ali zabegovic's vision of this country was actually one of a diverse pluralistic country he didn't seek to create an islamic state or an islamic emirate he really wanted to have a place where people could coexist and live peacefully together and uh you know when he came to power he was very very respected loved by the bosnians but at the same time, there's very little the man could do coming out of a war. And I think he did the best he could in the late 1990s when he was president. But, you know, there's only so much you can do in a country where literally the entire downtown area has been flattened by, you know, mortar shells and people are still searching for bodies of loved ones. So I think he was put into a very difficult position. But I think he did a very good job, all things considered. And I think in the West that there does need to be more knowledge of this man in his legacy, and of his writing and thinking, because I think it offers an interesting way to conceptualize Islamic governance, which was what my first book was about, in the 21st century. You know, he's, he's using language and terms that are familiar with people today. So, you know, if you want to read Mawardi or somebody from a thousand years ago, it's going to be hard to take that model and just implement it into a modern nation state. But what people like Izabegovic do, you can read that stuff and you can see where it resonates with the contemporary world. So yeah, I think he's, and the thing about his writing as well, it's not written at a level that's like overly full of academic jargon. So it's something that the typical Muslim who's got a decent IQ and the ability to read and write can read and actually understand. It's not written like Hegel, you know? So uh, I think that's another thing that makes it valuable is it's, it's accessible. It's not written in a manner that you have to have a dense philosophical uh, vocabulary to understand. And I remember when I read his work the first time, the translations of it, I was very impressed with the ideas. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that more people should read that. 
And can you recommend a work of his that uh, an English audience would be able to access and, and try to understand his mindset and his thinking? Well, the Islamic Declaration is probably his most well-known work. Yeah, all the stuff has been translated. Yeah, the Islamic Declaration was published uh, in English in 1990, and it's called the Program for the Islamization of Muslims and Muslim Peoples. So you, just by the title, you can see it sort of resonates with that side of Qibbal Atas's sort of Islamization of knowledge vision. And I think that's sort of an interesting model to also look at. So I think that this, there's sort of this, in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, this, this idea of the Islamization. How do you Islamize a society? Because that has to come first, right? You can't just drop down a top heavy-handed Islamic government on a population that isn't capable of or willing to accept it. So it's about changing attitudes and minds and getting people to, you know, rethink their norms first before implementing a state. and that's sort of what Izabegovich talks a lot about. And it's really interesting. He uh, he's, he's very understanding of the, the, he's very critical of Muslim world. He talks about the West. He gave a declaration to uh, OIC in 97 in Iran, noting that the West has been very successful in doing certain things like technology, education, that the Muslim world should look to these models to some extent and implement them in an Islamic manner, right? And I think that that's sort of something that, uh, more work needs to be done upon. And even today, you know, most of the top universities are located in, unsurprisingly, the countries that are the most powerful, right? I think of the best universities are in the UK, the US, Germany, Japan, to lesser extent. And uh, that says something. And if you look in the Muslim world, how many top 100 or five, even 500 universities are there? There's very few. So these are things that need to be reconsidered. And uh, this is sort of the heart of the Izabegovich project. And finally, Dr. Kaminsky, um, we, we hear a lot about uh, the resurgence of Islam in, in Bosnia. In fact, I think uh, President Macron has been making, has been making some uh, uh, speeches recently where he, he described Bosnia to be a, a, a place for jihadism in, in, uh, in Europe. And um, there's there's some discussion amongst uh, the securitization experts about um, Bosnia and its its um, and and what they call the sort of resurgence of Islamism in in the country. I mean, can you shed some light on uh, these uh, concerns? I suppose that uh, European nations are raising about about Islam in Bosnia. Well, I would say this. I think that this is quite unfounded and quite profoundly demonstrating the ignorance of these leaders. Now, as somebody who actually has an interest in Islamization, I, I feel like I probably have some uh, awareness of the local uh, Islamizers, if you want to call them that. And I can tell you, this is a society that I think is pretty secular for the most part. You know, there, there, there's certain Islamic cultural elements to it, but this certainly is not Saudi Arabia, nor is it going to be anytime soon. And, you know, of course, there's going to always be a, a few, a handful of radicals in just about any country. I mean, look at the United States, for goodness sake. There's radicals, radical white supremacists, far outnumbering the number of Islamist white supremacists or Islamist supremacists or whatever you want to call it here. So uh, I think that this is just, once again, another example of Europe continually wanting to paint this country as something it's not. You know, the fear of having a, Muslim, a strong Muslim country in the heart of Europe is something that is very unsettling for many people for historical reasons. And I can honestly say without any doubt that this country is hardly the securitization risk that whatever these people are playing it out. To. So I think that the securitization experts like to talk about this. And then when a case or two emerges of somebody doing something, 
then it gets blown up into being, you know, what it really is like here. I think this is part of the problem with Islamophobia is that all it takes is one case of somebody justifying your claims and then you feel like you can make them even more expansive. And so I, I don't know, I, I don't think I've seen any radicalism here in my six years. The students I've met that are religious, they're pretty religious and they, many of them have Hafiz of Quran and they travel, but I've not ex honestly heard anybody, people aren't thinking in that manner here. And I think that uh, it's just a terrible tragedy that, you know, this society, which is so, in my opinion, uh, you know, it's very moderate, is being painted as something it really is not by truly out of touch European elites. You know, and I, I would, I would recommend, and I'm sure you would recommend uh, more v Muslims. And we tend to visit sort of so-called Muslim, the mainstream Muslim countries when we go on holiday. Of course, in in a COVID nineteen world, that's uh, that's far off. But um, uh, I would highly encourage uh, Muslims to visit uh, Bosnia and. Um, and you've made it your home, right, uh, Dr. Kaminsky? Yes. I, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm literally waiting for a phone. The reason I answered the phone call earlier is because I thought it was the Ministry of Interior because I'm supposed to be my permanent residency permit, meaning I will be a green card holder in Bosnia, <laughs> meaning I can buy property and pretty much, you know, I, at least in the medium term, I plan on living here. You know, I have a, my contract just got extended for another five years, and uh, I... Uh, have no real desire to go back to the United States as it's being destroyed by COVID and political incompetence at the highest levels. So, yeah, I mean, this is, like I said, I've managed to make it home here. And, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to think about for many Muslims is, you know, America's a tough place to live. I'm not going to deny that. And, but at the same time, I think there's so limited opportunity for really political transformative change for Muslims there that, you know, looking to find another place to live is not a bad idea. And, you know, if you're a Muslim and you want to live an Islamic lifestyle free of all the stress of America, looking into a place like Bosnia or perhaps Kosovo might be a, a, an acceptable transition for many people because, you know, you have the Islamic part there, but it still is Europe and it's not as alienating as perhaps going to somewhere, you know, you know, I don't know, somewhere in the Gulf states where it very, is very different. Everyone here speaks uh, English. You know, Bosnia, just about everyone speaks pretty good English. Kosovo, even better. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that people should think about who want to try to get closer to other Muslims. And I, like I said, you know, there's, there's good and bad that we can talk about a different podcast of living in a developing country. But overall, if you have an open mind, if you're willing to accept that you're going to have to deal with some nonsense that's annoying, uh, you, you, you might really make it here and you might find yourself happier in the end. And tell me a bit about your book project that you're working on at the moment. My book is called... Um, Islam, liberalism, and ontology, critical reevaluation. And I'm looking sort of uh, at the, um, the ontological and epistemological moorings of both Islam and liberalism as discourses more broadly construed and trying to show where the dissimilarities primarily lie. It, it, because, you know, many people try to find a way to, you know, make the two resonate. And, you know, I feel like nobody's really done a good job of explaining why they don't resonate beyond just sort of very simple, you know, non really scholarly explanations. So I thought, you know, now's a good time to write a book to really break down, you know, understanding of moral epistemologies and where rights derive from and how we can conceptualize that between the two discourses. So that's what I'm currently doing. That's really fascinating. You must come back on the show to talk about your book once you've completed it. You know, I think the book will be, you know, people will find it interesting because this is a topic everyone's interested in right now is 
liberalism and Islam. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions. A lot of people don't really know what they're talking about because they either one don't really know anything about Islam or they don't know anything about liberalism. And I know a little bit about both. So I feel like I can competently comment and, you know, books under contract with Rutledge, it'll be, uh, it should be, I should be submitting my final um, draft to the publisher in September. What I sort of argue in the book is there's a, there is a sort of constellation of values that permeates liberal discourses more generally. And I flesh them out in my book, secularism, the importance of having separation of church and state clearly is an element. But, you know, people don't really engage with the actual thinkers on their own terms. You know, Rawls, uh, you know, Habermas, a lot of these people really engage in a technical level about public reason and its limits. And, you know, if you want to critique liberalism, I think it's better to go from these deeper levels rather than just this sort of, you know, liberalism is about doing whatever you want and Islam is about following the rules. Like, it's way more complicated than that. Jazakallah Kerr, Dr. Kaminsky. It's uh, really been a pleasure to speak to you today and uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. Next week, we talk to Ismail Roya from the United States about the Benedict Option. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.